start with uh, the cleansing walk? Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought I'd start out with a project that um, I did in DC in 2005. Just um, I'm only showing really recent projects from 2005, 2006 to now. Um, just a recent projects. And this is um, actually, it was done with Shigeko Bork Moo Project. And um, it was a series of um, performance uh, walks. Uh, me wearing a long dress of 20 yards and uh, in some um, historical or political sensitive areas in and around DC. But the project did start in New York. Um, um, how the impetus for this, which is kind of a jump between intensely personal and very public, I started this series of project because of uh, my cat died. He jumped out of my apartment window and died um, quite tragically, unexpectedly. And I was so um, grief-stricken, I was obsessed. I did two years of work all related to my cat, including this um, a series of walks. It was first started out as kind of a purging for me, like a funerary possession, because in Chinese culture, white is um, worn during funerals. Um, and then you have a procession with usually the patriarch or matriarch and everybody else following. So this is a singular procession. But then it was a cleansing process for me over grief. But then I literally would, you know, in a way was clean, clean, cleansing the walks that I was walking on because the dress would get very, very filthy, dirty at the end of it. So something that's interesting to me is that you do these in different sites. Yeah. And I'm wondering if they're received by the people around you in different ways than you intended. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, the first one I did, upper left-hand corner, was just on my block in Chinatown. And, um, and it was really weird for Chinese people because they were like, they kept pointing out to me. It's like, that's really dirty. Please walk here or there. They were very worried, especially the older ladies. And then when I did it on... Um, um, Brooklyn Bridge over there, I had a friend who was filming on the side and she was interviewing people that he saw. And then there were you know, a lot of tourists at, um, on Brooklyn Bridge and they were like, um, he asked this one lady you know, from, obviously not from New York, and she was like, oh yeah, she does this every weekend. And she had this whole story why I did it. I mean, obviously she's never seen me before because I had never done it at Brooklyn Bridge. But she had whole, her own story. And when I did it on the mall, it was a different kind of experience. Um, and, so. and an interesting thing for me is when I first saw these images, my association with the color white was that it was like a wedding, like a wedding dress. Right, right. And so the, cult, the, 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 the cultural significance, I think, changed in terms of my viewership of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, and I wonder if that's influenced other works that you've done. Like that, this experience of doing this has influenced like, the ways that you think about, if you think about audience differently or... Yeah, definitely. Well, this work is um, a little bit different from other pieces in that it's an idea I have and it's an execution. It's similar um, from site to site. I mean, it was done pretty, the same, pretty much the same in New York as it was in um, D.C. But other times where I would work very much responding just to a space. This is in Italy, um, in Tuscany, this little town where this is a bridge, um, a medieval bridge leading between the city and the monastery. And uh, the bridge was um, pretty much abandoned, especially the underneath part. And uh, there were a lot of um, teenagers who would go there like drinking and drug, drug use. And the city wanted to reclaim the space, so he, they gave it to artists to, you know, to, to, to kind of come up with whatever ideas. And I was working with the artist Tsai Guo Tiang, 
who had turned the space into a museum space. So each arch is actually a museum like a gallery. And he, when he asked me to respond, what I did was, um, because it was leading to a monastery, which had, oh, I'm sorry, not a monastery. It was a monastery and a cathedral. Um, they had these pipe organs there. And the valley has wind blowing through, so I had this project called Aeolian Garden. And it was wind blowing through the garden, the, the valley, and the pipes are different, have different pitches. So when the wind blows through, it would, depends on the direction of the wind and how strong the wind was, the sound would be quite different. It, didn't, it wouldn't make um, songs, that kind of melody. But when the wind is really strong, it actually it causes so much dissonance, it, uh, discord, that it's actually difficult to sit there. But when it's soft, um, it was a really beautiful space to kind of lie in with hammock and all this. And I wanted the space to be something that gives back to the local people as a place for contemplation, because it used to be a bridge between daily life to spiritual life, and then it became something completely different. And, um, and, it wor and they loved it so much that um, it actually became a permanent installation there. So when they don't have um, artists responding, you know, every couple years they'll have a new artist working, but when there's no other works, they put this piece up for the children there. What's interesting to me about this work is that you have, you go to a place that, um, that you don't know, you research the place and you learn about it, you think about how people use the space, and then you create something for that space. Um, and um, I guess for me, that, what, what's interesting about that is that it's not, like, it's not necessarily specific to your cultural background, but you had to figure out how to make something work there. Like right. We talked about pop art, and I don't know if this is a, I remember when I was in school this was used, but the idea that you make something in a studio and that work can be seen anywhere. Right. Your work is not necessarily that you're making, you're custom making it for the site. Right. And so I'm, I guess I'm wondering about, um, I, I, I imagined your process involves a lot of research, but. Um, well, I think it's because I have certain themes I'm exploring already. Mm -hmm. So the manifestation of this piece may be this, but the idea of harmony and uh, discord is something I've been working on a lot, including starting with the, pe the, the, the cat, you know, finding this kind of balance when you have something emotionally violent you're, you're dealing with, um, which, you know, is a very personal thing. You can't say what causes emotional violence, right? right. But trying to find that balance, that harmony. So, um, the work was exploring that already, so I think it's just the manifestation. I want to be sensitive to the location. You know, I didn't want something physically too overpowering in this beautiful site. You know, and then being in the valley, I was actually sitting there, wind was blowing through. I was like, oh, the wind is so nice. You know, just little things that come together. But then sound is a really perfect way to explore the idea of, you know, from music, you know, from, you know, this. Harmony and discord. Yeah. But you also took the pipe organs from the place, yeah. and then you used them. So it was something that was culturally specific right. to the, right. the space too. It's right. really nice. So it's not too foreign to the local people. It's something they recognize. And this use of, um, I think, this use of sound and also kind of um, cultural tradition comes up with the alms project that you did. Yeah, I think it's this one. Yeah, um, I was asked to. Uh, I'm one of those really geeky artists that when a curator asked me to for an exhibition, I actually read the curatorial statement, <laughs> I look at the theme, I study it, I really think about it. I really enjoy that kind of challenge. I would like to respond. I, I prefer to think it's a dialogue with, with somebody. And um, 
So the theme was um, belief. And I really thought it was a very, Singapore was a very interesting place. So the project I did was cross three, uh, this is a synagogue, I'm sorry, a, a mosque, a synagogue, and a Catholic church. And I took the same Friday, I went to record each of the worship service at each place. And I remixed um, them together, so, and then put them back into the space, but now, in the cathedral, you could hear Muslim prayers as well as um, Jewish prayers and vice versa in all the spaces. And these are all functional um, religious spaces. So it was very charged. Once, you know, if you're in a synagogue, you can hear um, the call for prayer of the, the Muslim call of prayer, you know, et cetera. And um, the video is the, um, actually I have a, I have, oops, I have, nope, doesn't want to play. I have an expert, uh, excerpt of this. It's just, um, you'll see. Oh, the sound is a little low. Mm. We can describe it for people. Well, the sound, well, it's mixed down in the space. We had different speakers, so you can actually hear different, um, you know, from a different religion, from a different speaker, come from a different place. But here, obviously, it has to be mixed down for this purpose. probably can't hear. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but you get the idea, it's kind of like a magical through different religious sounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, with, with that kind of idea, I mean, ideas of cultural identity, mixing them is an interesting thing that comes up with this piece for me. And, and also your identity, and someone changes by your experiences, putting, making these pieces happen site specifically. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the process you go through with this piece? Well, this piece, the video actually is something I have played with. You know, I do have sort of a studio practice, which is drawing and video. I do these sketches. I kind of consider video like painting and sketch in time. So I do these little ones. And I have a bunch of them stored away. So sometimes, you know, when another show comes up, it works well. When I, was, when I went to um, Singapore, at first, I didn't know what I was going to do at all. I just spent a lot of time in the religious spaces. But the curator did give me this, the, the cathedral to work with. She said, it's a very difficult space. Um, it's very public, but it's also very nice. We don't have anyone responding to this piece. Can you? So I just went and traveled to different, you know, and I really had this idea that I want to work with these three religions that stem from the same, really the same root, but now causes some of the biggest struggles in our contemporary life. So I thought it would be a really interesting um, theme to play with in Singapore, such a small city-state that somehow find harmony. So this is the idea of harmony again. And actually, the piece is quite long. It's about 15 minutes. There are times, because a lot of times people just sit in the church and watch this. When there are moments, it's very strange where things kind of come together. And the three songs, because there are a lot of chanting and singing in this religious service, they almost seem like one. And other times, it's just they're completely not, you know, at um, ease with each other. So um, it was really going to these services that kind of came, this idea came. And I already had this video piece I was playing with. I thought, alms, you know, it's like take, you know, asking to receive, you know, and religion has this relationship of, you know, asking, but then donation, but then having too much, it becomes institution, it becomes something else. So this balance of um, having and not having and having enough and too much, so it just kind of 
came together in that way. It's interesting with the, the next, uh, the project change word, because you go back to, um, where is this? Is this? This is in China. This is a place called Yan'an. Um, this is the installation there. Yan'an was the first city that the communists, essentially uh, Chinese communists, set up um, a, cap a capital there. Mm -hmm. um, it was in the northwestern part of China, where the nationalists didn't want it. It was so poor. It was like mm -hmm. dirt poor. And to this day, it's a very small village. I mean, it's very poverty-stricken. Anytime you go there, I mean, it's basically revolutionary tourism. But the idea, this project could be really done anywhere in China or in Asia for that, or anywhere for that matter. Because I want every time I go back to China, I see these public signs in English, and it would be so bad. The English would be so bad. It would just cringe. So I had this idea of um, almost like a public service, mm -hmm. like project change word, is just to change all the public signs and make them into correct English. So, so in some ways you're giving a skill that you, you've learned you know, in the US. Yeah, and I, worked, and I worked as a translator for many years. Uh -huh. I mean, I was like, I was a very good translator. So, but to me what's so interesting about this project is there's a sense of giving, but there's also what the response was was not they were insulted. Yeah, well, they first loved it because I went to the, I think the cultural relic his, uh, office, and they loved the idea. I was like, you know, there are a lot of mistakes. They were like shocked. They were like, no, we had experts check this. We went to Beijing, you know, and these are done in granite, huge granite, very beautiful and expensive. You know, chisel, someone chiseled this in there. But you know, someone who's chiseling, they may not know the difference between the I and the L, you know? You know, there are things like that. And then also the translator, obviously it has some issues they didn't quite do. They're like, great. So I made this you know, book, I gave them this book. They were like 250 signs. Mm -hmm. So I documented all of them. And then for the sake of the exhibition, I also these, make these posters showing an example. But when he saw this, all of a sudden he became really upset because these are revolutionary sites. And all of a sudden he thought, um, whoa, the mistake is really, you know, for example, like a staff club, they just left out the L, so it became cub. Cub in English, it sounds cute, but in Chinese, it's actually kind of, it's kind of like saying bastard or something. Mm -hmm. So it became, and he was so, became so upset. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to actually physically tear down the, the, the installation. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Chinese people love, it's special contemporary art, they love controversy. And then the video cameras went into his face, you know, it was like, <laughs> why are you doing this? You know, this is not right of the artist. And then the whole time I'm thinking, I'm saying, don't fight, because I don't, my, yeah. I really want him to, to take this book. I really want him to take this seriously, you know? This is a great example of like personal expression becoming political by the fact of it being in a public sphere. Yeah. But you're also responding to think cultural things around you and the site. Right. So I think an artist's vision, like your vision, in some ways disrupt, disrupted the mythology in there. Because I think mm. in some ways, seeing those big panels are almost didactic. Yeah, when yeah, it's yeah. Telling, it's almost, well, they it's are like didn't. it's a teacher correcting a paper. Well, a you know, bit. science are didactic <laughs> in themselves. Yeah, that's right, they're right, teaching right. you, they're telling you how to read this um, site, you know, historical site or whatever. I think you're creating an exception to the story. Like, here's the official story, and you're saying, well, there's some problems here. Right, right. And that, I think, you know, so, and I, it's, in some ways, I see some of the works working on a metaphoric level in terms of how they're placed in, in their cultural surroundings. Yeah. Um, to deal with tensions that you might see as an outsider. Do you come in seeing those tensions or do they things that kind of un, uh, 
I mean, I, mm. do they reveal themselves to you as you're there longer? Yeah. Well, you always anticipate tension. If, you, if you're touching on anything sensitive, I knew someone would probably be upset about this. Mm -hmm. So I was very careful. This is why I went in. I actually had someone from the cultural ministry from Beijing come with me mm -hmm. and just had a talk with them, just to make sure he knew that I was, you know, legit. I'm not just only trying to be subversive. I mean, of course, art is subversive. You can't avoid that. But at least, you know, I'm not doing it just to, you know, make him lose his job. But still, you don't know where it's going to come from. Just like in the synagogues I was working in, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. I went in with the imam, the elders of the synagogue saying, I could go, I'm sorry, the mosques, saying that I could go in. But whenever I was there, if there was an ma older male that was accompanying me, uh -huh. I was fine. But as soon as that person leaves, just a little far, I will always have a young man come to me and tell me how offensive it is to see me in his mosque, even though I was covered and everything. And I would, I would say, well, I'm at the invitation of your mosque to do this work for you. And he was very, always very, they were always young men, yeah. not older men, which right. I thought was interesting, which is something actually, I knew there would be tension, but I actually didn't anticipate it from a younger, I thought it would yeah. be the older people that might have a problem yeah, the, with it. Yeah, the thing is somehow they would be, um, because they're younger, they would be more, Open or, open or something, but actually it's not the case. It was the exact opposite. The mm -hmm. older men were much more at ease with me being there. If we um, were looking at, uh, this one's called Politics of Fear, and so you're you talking about... Um, yeah, well, that, that kind of leads, because yeah. the time I spent in Singapore and a lot of the, with a lot of the women in the, mo in the mosques, because they were separated, this image of them um, just, you know, being shrouded and praying was such a strong image. And this was a show in London called The Politics of Fear. So this was a very natural reaction. It came right after Singapore Biennial. And um, so this is done in marble. Um, and But when you walk around to the front, you approach a work from the back. When you walk around to the front, um, the faces are chiseled out. This is actually stretched. We, okay, this is okay. Um, and all the figures are facing Mecca, actually, so I feel like the installation is actually much larger in scale. There's an invisible space uh -huh. that extends to. So, oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So it's there, but they're looking through the museum at Mecca. I mean, they're still yeah. looking at, is the museum Mecca? <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, so, okay, that's a, so that's an, an interesting thing. I mean, and, and now you're bringing an experience from from one culture into into this was where was this done? This was done in, in London. In London, yeah. So the idea of t bringing that experience of, of your your experience with Muslim culture to London, how did that kind of register with people there? Well, you know, this thing about you know people, it's it's kind of hard to categorize because I think we're expected to only draw from our own culture, mm -hmm. which is weird because. You know, talk about globalization. You know, the world is our culture. Mm -hmm. I think we should be able to freely draw from any experience that impact us, and which is what I do. So, no, I'm. You know, by looking at this piece, I guess people would never think this is necessarily a Chinese, an artist. You know, who was born in China, because you know, there's no Chineseness to it. It's marble. It's a very Western. You know, and then the imagery is Islamic. But it has such a profound impact on me, the experience. I just felt like, as an artist, we shouldn't be so defined by these mm, preconceived cultural 
limitations, and that before I'm Chinese, I'm a person, you know, before I'm a woman, I'm a person. Well, that was interesting because when we were working on the, the mailer, I was, you know, I was saying Chinese artist, and you were like, well, I, you know, that, I don't, you know, there was a sense that you were feeling pigeonholed by that. Right. And that people would have an expectation of the kind of work you would make, right. and that somehow it would be some kind of, um, that you were representing an entire country. Yeah, I mean, it's a descriptive, right? I'm Chinese, Chinese. I'm Chinese born, um, but I think also because Chinese art has been such a hot thing for the past decade, you know, there is an expectation, and I didn't want to, yeah, you're, like you said, I didn't want to be necessarily pigeonholed as in, you know, or set up any kind of expectation. But I, I'm not disputing the fact that I'm Chinese, obviously. You did say when in our conversation you talked about the idea of global as being a Western discourse. That, oh, that yeah. was something that was created by kind of a Western mindset. And that artists maybe are who are being considered global or working on a global level or think of the world as their studio or however we want to say it, the pressures on them in some ways are is it like the Olympics, you know, where you have to represent your country? Mm -hmm. Or is it more about being a citizen of many different cultures? I mean, the, the potential there is kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, on the good side of globalization, you like to think we're all citizens of this world, right? But yeah, I do think for the most part, globalization is a um, Western, in, within the Western discourse. I mean, it's really about Coca-Cola going to the villages of, I mean, Africa. They're influenced a lot more by that than we are by some African or Asian village, their culture. When it is imported into, imported into our realm, it's seen very, as very exotic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the f how, mm, I feel that that's how a lot of biennials have functioned and that's how they became you know, such major stages. Mm -hmm. There's wonderful things that they served. I'm not discounting that, yeah. but there is a danger there. You know, it is within, our, I mean, Contemporary art is really largely a Western discourse also, you know, seeing art in a certain context. So, why. you know, um, oh, this piece here um, was the one that you did at the Guggenheim. Yeah. Which is interesting because the Guggenheim, you know, it kind of, it's, it, it sees itself, it, it's, its branding is of being a, a global museum. Right. Um, and so it's interesting you've had two different exhi exhibitions with the Guggenheim. Yeah, and then each one is responding to very different spaces. And uh -huh. this one is actually a skylight. Um, normally it is a skylight, and I just put um, projectors inside the skylight, so they're projection of um, these words that are embroidered words. I have a close-up of these words, which is you, me, you. You, first one being singular, the second one's plural. So the distance, like the boundary between people um, and the video is always out of focus. It can never remain on focus on the word for too long, which is, you know, it's just always out of focus. So I think it was kind of, yeah, just a reflection of how I felt about, maybe it is about the boundaries of, um, you know, larger boundaries too, like cultural mm -hmm. identical, uh, identity, this idea. Well, the you, me, you too is an interesting thing because it's also about an identity, like it's mm -hmm. you and you make me and then I make you. It could be about identity in a certain sort of way and it language is, and yeah, how that works too. Right. Um, I mean, when, I think it's the next, it's the next stuff is the Olympics, right? Okay, right. so this is our surprise for people because we're talking about globalism, but, um, but we're also talking about that as an artist, you've also worked with teams and you've collaborated, not mm -hmm. only doing curation, but also working on teams. 
the things with the Olympics, and I just find this really interesting because with the Olympics, you were able to have access to technology you'd never be able to have mm -hmm. before. So you're able to work on a, a giant scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm interested in the process of, in terms of you're working with the Olympics. Um, what, how your voice as an artist? What happened to your voice as an artist? Well, and maybe you could maybe first talk about what what the idea was and what happened in case people. Right, you mean yeah. talking about the brainstorm one piece, or or, or, or just overall, but yeah, about yeah, Beijing. Yeah. Well, uh, I worked as a um, um, one of the core creative team members. There were seven of us that oversaw all the aspects, and then under the seven, they're of course broken down into teams of mm -hmm. um, you know stage design, music, et cetera, et cetera. But um, well, it's art by committee, right? right? So it's almost devoid of personality, and I certainly consider this not my personal work. I don't. Oh. I, I do include it when I give talks to show, just because it was such a huge experience. I mean, I spent two years devoted to this project, uh -huh. two and a half years, and it took a lot out of me, and I think it really marked me, too. You know, uh -huh. it's a, you know, what they say, life-changing, life-defining experience. Uh -huh. It was definitely that. But I don't consider this my piece though there are things that I have direct hand in, there are things I have influence over, there are things, you know, this is a scene that I designed and created, I proposed, and that was, you know, and this was the very first thing you saw when the world looked at the Olympics. It was the thunder going around the so rim of the, the stadium. The top and slides are, are kind of like, are, when chase. you say thunder, you, are you mean the lightning. Like lightning? Lightning, like lightning yeah. kind of goes through yeah. an LCD? Kind of thing, or what, what? It's actually little bombs. I call them little bombs. They're like pyrotechnics. You uh -huh. know, it's like this. Uh, this it's gunpowder packed into uh -huh. these little tight little things, and then they they they're programmed computer by computer, so mm -hmm. it's sequential. So it goes all the way around, and then it strikes down, uh, you know, horizontally uh -huh. like like lightning. And then underneath this this slide is dark is actually the uh, the drummers. I don't know if you guys remember the drummers at the beginning who mm -hmm. which, which were just super like I guess that's a lot of people remember them for that. Mm -hmm. So it ignites the dr drummers and drummer starts to drum from here. So that's So in terms of like when you came to this project it wasn't really much about personal expression as making something happen. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, there is this you know, it was like a great chance for China to show another side, and we're so afraid it was going to be like the old song and dance. So there were a lot of us, um, especially like artists from overseas who are Chinese descent. We really, we formed a team to say, we have some ideas, could you just take a look? But they really liked a lot of the ideas, so some of us were brought on board. There were like five or six of us were brought on board of the creative team that actually made things, I think just make things a little bit more contemporary, more artistic. Because I, I think in, in, Was in, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of official art, like yeah. art that is officially for the public and represents like, the higher ideals of the state. Or, um, with, with, um, with your work, did you, working with this, was there the same sense? I mean, that you were making, I guess, you're, yes. I mean, you're, yeah. you're making 5,000 years of history <laughs> in 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah, there was. Definitely that. It was a lot about national pride. Uh -huh. um, and certainly I, I, I'm for that, you know, mm -hmm. because it is 
Olympics, you know? Olympics is like uh, what I call global uh, propaganda. I mean, Olympics is this one ideal upon all the people, you know, 200 some nations. I mean, there are some great ideals, but you know, still it's about competition. Competition is a very Western idea too, in many ways. So, you know, there's no, um, you know, we weren't fooling ourselves, like we're doing some kind of, I didn't treat it as an art project. But I did want to bring some kind of reflection. You know, I think there are different layers of culture and history you can bring, maybe that can um, incite some discussion, rather than just saying, we're great, we're great, we're great. Right. So. And so with this, this is like a, if you consider this a site-specific work, um, you know, it's an interesting thing, because it's kind of this weird neutral site. Mm -hmm. you know? It's more about an, an idea. But I'm just kind of curious how this fed into the, the, the work that followed it. I mean, this well, I well, oh, this oh. is the Olympic rings. This is part of the when the ring lifted up. This is um, a quite actually one of my favorite moments that and we so worked on. They were flat. They were made of light, light, and they were LED flat. lights. LED lights, and they were flat, and then they were lifted they were up. lifted. They were rigged on these nets, like which is invisible in the darkness. And so uh -huh. when it floated up, it almost looked magical. Uh -huh. It's quite pretty. What was, the I mean, what was the pleasure for you in watching this? I mean, what, what was the part that you felt well, engaged with? You know, aside from the national pride, which there is part of that, but you know, it's looking at pretty things, beautiful things. I mean, a lot of it is aesthetic experience. If you have an idea and you have 20, 20, 2,000 people helping you realize it, yeah. it's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, the, it does feed a little bit into the ego, too. Uh, just a little, yeah. yeah just a little. <laughs> <laughs> this lighting the torch, you know, some other pyrotechnic things. I mean, it's crazy looking. Well, but on the, the flip side, there is side of me that's very active. I was very engaged. You know, I gave up my home in New York. I moved back to Beijing. But at the same time, I was, um, there is a side of me that was very deeply unhappy. I felt like um, this was like a false banquet. Supposedly, mm -hmm. everyone was invited to, but yet it wasn't the case. You know, it's only for the pretty. It's not for a lot of the citizens. The city was cleaned up. It was, you know, there were a lot of problems. That, so I was helping the state, but I was deeply unsatisfied. Mm -hmm. So I did, this is this project I did right before the opening ceremony opened. It was like a week before. And it's right over Tiananmen Square. This flat building is Chairman Mao's mausoleum right here. So it's a projection on smoke. It's um, the image, it's an animated monkey um, rotating his staff. And it's an image that's recognized, instantly recognizable by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, for a Chinese audience which is a rebellious monkey that's known by every child. It's like everyone's favorite hero, that he was, there was a big celestial party. Everyone under heaven was invited, and he thought he was for sure invited. When he went, and his name wasn't on the guest list, he got so mad, he thrashed the party. He drank all the wine, ate all the food. In the process of eating all this food, he became immortal, because this was like a celestial party, right? So they couldn't kill him. And... Uh, so it was this idea of rebellion, you know, like I'm preparing for this banquet, which is like the opening ceremony that the whole world was invited to. But then at the same time, I really just wanted to thrash it at the same time because it was just so against everything I was against, you know, as an artist, as someone who grew up, you know, largely grew up here in the States. So, um, but then... So what was the reaction to this piece? Well, it must have been different than the reaction to your work in the Olympics. Oh yeah, but because I was on the official 
team of Olympics, I was allowed to make the piece. If I were just a regular citizen artist, I would have a much harder time. I had the police, I, because I worked um, with the city so closely, I was very, very friendly with the police department, with the head of the police. But when I wanted to do this, they were like, okay, I'm not gonna give you a permit to do this, you can go ahead and do it. If you get arrested, I'll, I'll come and bail you out. But I cannot put my stamp on here to say you have permit. Uh -huh. So that's how it was done. But this is also projection onto smoke. Smoke. So it's very temporal. In yeah, yeah, yeah. It was magical. When there is uh, no smoke, there's nothing there. When there's smoke, you see the monkey, like riding on the smoke. It so was even, even fabulous. if it were a political statement, it's kind of in thin air. It's like, yeah. grab onto it. It's not like a monument or something that's supposed to be eternal. Right, right, so right. So it's kind of... But then they're, no, 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 they're more suspicious of that because they don't understand it. Oh, okay. You know, we fear what we don't understand. Uh -huh. If it's, a, I think if it's a sculpture, they can smash it, they can put it away, oh, they can cover. But this is something you can't, right? So there is another layer they don't understand. So at the opening, the, the head of the, this person did come. He came, he looked at it very quickly, and he came to me, he's like, hum, hum, hum. <laughs> and he was just like, this piece, you know? He knew it was, because it's so recognizable, the yeah. figure, he knew there was the, the subversive side. But I think he must, felt it too, you know. Yeah, so to me, you're working now on such a scale and on such a, in such a public kind of way. Is there, do you ever feel that there's something missing in terms of intimacy, or is this really your No, medium? I think, well, for example, that piece, I did it at the closing ceremony. I did this piece at the National Museum, which is much smaller in scale. The hand is about this big. It's much more intimate. So I think work can be adapted to any size. It's mm -hmm. just what you're trying to say here is later on in the story of the saga of the monkey. No one can subdue him, so they brought the Buddha out. Mm -hmm. And Buddha said, I'll give you, I'll make a bet with you. If you can leap out of my hand, I'll give you the title sage under heaven, equal to heaven. And monkey said, of course, because he's a magical monkey. He can, with one somersault, he can go 10,000 leagues. Mm -hmm. so, so he just went somersaulted, somersaulted, and for a long time, he came to the edge of the world. Because in Chinese mythology, the world is held up by these pillars to keep the heaven from mm. falling. So he saw these huge pillars. He was like, oh, I'm at the edge of the world. No one has ever been here before. As a monkey does, he takes a piss at the bottom of the, of the pillar and writes cars on there. Monkey was here. And he leaps all the way back and said, you know, to Buddha, I've been to the edge of the world. And Buddha said, oh yeah, take a look. And then at the bottom, the middle finger, he could smell a little monkey piss, and he saw the words, <laughs> tiny words, monkey was here. Because you know the idea that Buddha is all-encompassing. Right. You can't leap out of the hand uh -huh. of the Buddha. So, it's also about ego in a certain sort of way. Well, it's also about my experience in the Olympics. Yeah. You know, like, I tried, <laughs> but, you know, the state uh -huh. is everywhere, you know? Uh -huh. All it remains is the idea of trying to get out. So, but then I did this piece very small scale, even mm -hmm. though you know the idea of Buddha is everywhere. That, you know the state is everywhere, but this is actually very small because sometimes it's a reversal that um, it becomes more poignant. I think. Can you? Uh, I think we should talk about uh, Inkstorm and uh, Brainstorm, which is. Um, happening in D.C., if that's okay. Yeah. I think it came out of this piece that you did in Well, Japan. this is related. In Japan, I did this um, The show. It's just closing this week. I painted all the plants on this landscape black with Sumi ink. I think you can see the details. Yeah, yeah you can see it better. It's a beautiful piece, very powerful. And then inside the structure, I made 21 ink pools um, reflection. Um, um, 
so this is just, um, so I've been kind of obsessed with this ink um, recently, and, um, and interestingly enough, the, the genesis of this piece came from Olympics. I originally proposed the, you know, I'll, maybe I'll play this as I'm talking. I think for me it would be, it's interesting to talk about how your work as an artist, um, you also start to curate too. Mm -hmm. and, um, and talking about uh, where you're representing yourself, now you're representing, you're helping to represent other artists China. Yeah. Well, the show is a Transformer, which opens tomorrow. I hope you guys can come. It's 1 to 7. And uh, I will be there with um, Paula Tsai, who's also one of the artists who's here t today, um, from 2 to 4. So um, the, I was asked by Victoria Transformer to curate a show with Chinese artists. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of sh works about showing about Chinese art already, but I really wanted to attack it thematically. And a subject matter close to my heart is ink. It's something I've been playing with. This is something I did from actually the beginning of the Olympics. Um, what you're seeing here, like in the back um, backdrop of the ink is actually um, painted ink on glass. Um, this was actually gonna be the opening scene of the opening ceremony. We mm -hmm. talked about this being, not this particular look, but very abstract ink splashes um, for, as a gateway into Chinese culture um, for about six to seven months. But eventually it was scrapped because people thought it was too abstract. The world that people from the world could not understand. Right. So, you know, a lot of it, when you talk about globalization, there's, I wonder, I think, there's the idea there's you I, kind of have to dumb things down a little bit. Well, the idea is that they somehow know the public and they say, this is what the public wants. They generalize who the public Or is. I think they underestimate the intelligence of people yeah. for the most part. Or that people might want to struggle a little or they might want to be challenged. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So eventually what we did in Olympics was, it's a beautiful scene, which is people, dancers painting directly onto the glass, mm -hmm. onto the paper, mm -hmm. which is still a beautiful scene, but it's much more literal, you know, you as a vehicle, mm -hmm. rather than this really abstract, the form of the ink flowing. But, um, so I was playing with this, you know, I, I, I continued to paint in this way, and um, play, and then I just found ink to be such an amazing medium mm -hmm. that um, that's so beautiful and direct mm -hmm. and honest, mm -hmm uncompromising, but yet so yielding. Mm -hmm. So um, I really, when I was thinking about the show at Transformer, I wanted to, I thought this is the opportunity that I could have a conversation with other artists who also deal with ink, but in different ways, to show that there is a group of artists dealing with something traditional, but then reinterpreting it in a contemporary way. And each of the artists deal with this quite differently. Maybe I can just show yeah, a few Yeah, show me some it. of these. And again, these works will be um, displayed in Transformer. Yeah, that's um, starting tomorrow until Octo October 31st. So it's for a month and a half. And this is just giving you some idea. It's not, the work in person are really quite great. Um, so de definitely see in person. This first piece I want to show is Chen Shaoxiong. Um, he's like, we built this kind of Rashomon um, kind of column. He's describing a series of events in his life um, in four different ways. So you have to watch it by laying down, sitting, standing, and stepping on a ladder. And these are some stills. And what he did was he took images from his digital camera and did daily exercises of, of painting ink very quick, many, many of them. Mm -hmm. And then over a year's period, then he would combine them um, into a, a video. 
So it's almost like he, it's, he's creating animation from the drawings. Yeah. That shown in that installation where you can see it from four from different, different points, of view. points of view and different ways. He edited them differently. He narrates, narrates them differently. Um, really beautiful, and it really plays with the idea of memory because painting or drawing, I think, was a memory. It's one of the earliest memory marking, you know, devices mm -hmm. that we had. But mm -hmm. he's really playing with how memory is perceived and how we see it, and mm -hmm. and it's altered by photography and by video. And um, it's, there's this transformation transformation that happens mm -hmm. within this work. So these are some stills that you see, and then his is very global too. I mean, go from karaoke bar in in Guangzhou to his home to um, the working with the, for these drawings, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, working with Japanese artists. This is you know uh, in a international exhibition with some curators. I think this is in Basel. Uh -huh. So you know he's really tackling right, <coughs> airplanes and etc. Uh -huh. um, the second artist Dai Guangyu um, is making a um, installation where it's called Empire's Borders. Um, there's a map of China in soil, and when it's soaked with water, the, there's ink in there that expands and the border becomes blurred. But then he made this piece specifically for DC for the space, and there's another side to it, so it's not just um, uh, China, there's a US side, but uh -huh. you'll have to come and see for yourself. Oh, you so. want to keep the surprise, yeah. right? And this is him working on the earlier installation. And uh, Paula Tsai, who's here today, she has, her installation is called Mound, and it's a beautiful, uh, delicate piece of um, ink on paper, and all the pieces are cut out individually, and as these cells, or, um, but then they work together um, as a whole, obviously. So this idea of the um, collective and an individual and what, that you're anonymous, but yet you have this very strong identity within one. And then this, I love her piece in that she really deals with um, the medium itself in a formal way too. You know, right. there's conceptual idea behind this, but mm -hmm. then it's a deconstructive way of looking at ink painting. They, they're not representational, mm -hmm. they're abstract. Um, and that they are, even the papers cut out, that's put together to form something, uh -huh. to I mean, form another is form. It in, and you could say it's in reaction to maybe cultural traditions of ink painting, which are, which are like I'm thinking of land, the landscape. Landscape, yeah, and it forms a landscape, but it's completely different Very type different. of lands, landscape painting that you would typically see. Yeah. So it's, it's responding, I think, to the tradition in so many different ways. And so I guess from, What's interesting to me is that um, you now kind of uh, you're cur curating other Chinese artists and kind of showing their work publicly. Are you sensitive in some ways to how you're showing them publicly, just because of how you've been, how you as a Chinese artist have been, or as, as an art artist from China have been shown? I mean, yeah. You, what informs your, your curating? Well, for this exhibition, definitely it was it's about the medium. You know, mm -hmm. I really felt like. I wanted to, you know, because grouping artists by geological location or, you know, nationality is pretty much meaningless. But when you have a group of artists have a certain history background, traditional background, you know, some loosely, right, larger cultural context. And when they respond to that, how they find a way out of tradition and be reinterpreting that so it's, contemporary and also that it offers something new to this discourse, our discourse that we're on. I think that's interesting. I think that is really worth looking into. Um, so I'm really, yes, they are, these are Chinese artists, yeah. but really I see them as artists who are dealing with this medium specifically, yeah. you know, whether from formally, cons 
um, conceptually, from a psychological standpoint, socio-political, these are ways that we can extend um, things that are handed down to us, but that when we are reacting to the world that is global, that's changing, that's with its, all these influences, then what comes out, which is something really brand new, I feel. And what, I mean, what you're making me think about is the Smithsonian and how the Smithsonian is divided up into different mm -hmm. museums, and those museums and sometimes are culturally specific and are about a certain national, I mean, a certain cultural identity. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to have to have that conversation another yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to have time to open up um, the conversation to the audience. Anything that um, came up during our talk that you want to mention? Okay, great. repeat the question. Okay, the question is about uh, having grown up essentially in communist China and an atheist state. Um, when I work in religious spaces, um, whether there is how I approach it, whether I have some issues or if I end up taking some of the belief with me, is that right? Um, well, I did, you know, I was grew up, I, I was brought up very much an atheist. And being in, China is such a big place, it's hard to make a blanket statement, but where I was living in Beijing, so close to the capital, that's totally, you know, by the book, atheist. Whereas down south, a lot of religion was allowed to main, remain somewhat. You know, a lot of people from the south could practice Buddhism and Taoism to a certain extent, you know. But I did grow up as an atheist. But um, I came to the States, actually I'm a Christian. My belief is, is Christianity. But what's interesting about China, but I think it's also personal, I don't know, I can't say, I de definitely don't make this statement for other Chinese, is that it's a very diversified country too. It's not that homogeneous. We have Muslim, I was telling Ryan that, actually I have, um, my mate, Nasi Ma, is um, in China, it, large population of, the largest minority group is Muslims. It's a Hui minority which is from like Central Asia or like Turkey, Turkey that migrated. And our family is from that background. It's just that we, at some point in my grandfather's era, we were probably kicked out. My, by my grandfather's assertion, we were kicked out. So we don't practice it. And uh, on my mom's side, we actually have Jewish blood. My mom's great-great-grandmother was Jewish. So there is a side. So I was always really fascinated with religion. So. That's something I, uh, I didn't have a problem with because I was so um, interested, I wanted to find out more. And um, with Buddhism, now, you know, if you go to China, the temples are you know, always very busy. But the Chinese are very practical about how they, how they deal with religion. It's whatever works for them personally. So I think there's very Chinese about me. I take whatever works for me personally as an artist. Um, and I find that, the most important thing working in sensitive spaces is if you just go there with respect to the people. I No, I don't know a lot about Judaism, but when I was working with them, I just asked them a lot of questions. 
And actually, I think, I think they found it to be really refreshing. I was like, because they were, you know, there were a lot of quite orthodox um, Jews that practiced there. You know, being in Singapore, there's only one or two synagogues, so there were all kinds of, you know. So there were some that were very orthodox. So I just asked, what's up with the hat? What's this you're wearing? I just asked everything, but I just asked with respect, and they were really loved explaining. And, um, and I found to be the case in every place. If you just go in kind of humble and say, I really don't know enough, but just ask respect, people respond to you. And in that, you have an engagement. They respond to your work more, and they can give you feedback, too. So I don't know if that explains. There's another question over here. And can I remind people who are using the microphone to put it right up to your mouth so <laughs> we can record it? Well, I've had lots of experience organizing exhibitions, more as an organizer or um, uh, producer sort um, before. So I have a lot of experience working with other artists. And in my own work, I'm very collaborative. I work with a lot of other um, artists as well. And you know, from as big as Olympics to smaller, more personal projects. So um, I think I have a little bit of that pre-knowledge, but I have to say, being a curator really has given me a newfound respect and appreciation for curators. <laughs> it's hard work, you know, because <laughs> you do have, have to be considerate, and you have to consider, um, you know, being an artist, if I'm in a show, and a lot of times when you're in a big biennial, you really have to fight for yourself, you have to really make your voice, you have to be a little bit unreasonable, you know, because you have to make sure your, your concept translates. Whereas in a curate, as a curator, I have to make sure the whole show works. As an artist, I just have to make sure my work works, you know, and I want people to look at me, you know, not someone else, you know, being selfish to a certain degree. But, you know, for, as a curator, you have to really consider everything, the concept, and you have to think that it has to be good for everybody. The show has to be really strong in order for it to be good for everybody. If it's only for one or the other, then the show collapses, then it's not good for any, anybody. So there's a lot of that. And also having to write curatorial statement, and I've made myself, I put it upon myself. Actually, Victoria did not force me or anything, but I said, I'm gonna write it. Boy, that's really hard. I'm still working on mine, Victoria. I'll try to give it to you this afternoon <laughs> to print out. Because I still, you know, there's just, um, it's a different voice. It comes from a different part, right? I think as an artist, I work, I respond more emotionally, viscerally, and then the intellectual side is behind. But maybe as a curator, it's more the intellect at the forefront. And then, of course, in the space, at the field of artwork. So something like that. I'm still processing. <laughs> and this is pretty new, I mean, in terms of curating. Yeah, this is my first curated project. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've organized a lot of things, but as a really curator, selecting the artists, working the artwork, working with the artists, mm -hmm. you know, forming the ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love it. Great. It's great. Thanks, Victoria. <laughs> uh, mm. We have another question here. And we have one more after that.
well, I think it should probably happen organically. And um, I mean, there's been some really amazing and important um, milestone exhibitions happened along the way that actually, you know, I'm kind of, when we're talking like this, I'm making some blanket statements about globalization and Western discourse. But, you know, there's like Magicians of the Earth, these, you know, early exhibitions that really brought in different um, walks of life, even not even necessarily artists looking at them. But what I'm saying about the Western discourse is that the way we look at art is very Western. You know, I mean, in a museum, in a box, in a, um, in a gallery, it's a very Western way. Traditionally, for just for example, Chinese way of viewing artwork, you can go to someone's collection, you know, being that there's no public institutions, but a big collector, you go to someone's study, a beautiful scholarly study. There will, may not be a lot of artworks up, and there might be just, because uh, it's in scrolls. He will, you will talk to the collector, he will speak with you, he will find out what your interests are, he'll be like, ah, I might have something you like, and then he will open up a scroll, and the world opens up in front of you, and then you can travel in this world, and you can talk with them, what this is about, and the, the, the scroll actually has, it's time-based, because from the beginning to the end, um, the, you, you've, you, if you're look, traveling through a landscape, it could be from the spring to the winter, you know? And that's a very different way of looking at um, a painting, you know, a singular perspective and a moment frozen in action, mm -hmm. you know, from the Western way. So I think even though we are bringing in a lot of different elements from around the world, the way we look at them are largely is from the Western discourse. And that's not necessarily bad. I think it also challenged artists curators, historians, scholars from each particular tradition to say, well, okay, what is about way we look at things that we can contribute? Mm -hmm. So I think it, it needs to be, what, a two-way, three-way, multiple-way conversation. Yeah, that there's contribution. That not everything has to be categorized by a, a, a rational system that's based on, like, kind of a Western historical perspective. Right. But there might be other ways of understanding the world um, that aren't integrated into the ways that museums have been set up or galleries have been set up or the way that Western society displays art. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a, another that's a huge, topic. Yeah, that's a huge question. <laughs> because every culture views artwork in a different way with different functions. Uh, I mean, that's just my humble, no, no, <laughs> no, so no. humble perspective. Yeah. But um, one more question and then we have to end. Um, but we hope that people continue to talk about these ideas. Working right now, or, boy, a lot. I mean, I really, and I find new artists I like a lot. I mean, there's so many artists' names I can't say. That's so crazy, right? I, like, I have efflux. It's like every day I'm just so overwhelmed, and there's always really interesting things. Um, yeah, I, I, I. It's hard sometimes on the spot. Right. Mm. I'm a fan of the artworks of the, the of artists that in the show. So, <laughs> and I made a spell, misspelling Phillips collection. Right. Sorry. So, um, the video that you saw part of uh, Brainstorm will be at the Phillips collection from October 15th to January 3rd. So I hope you guys can come to that. And I'll be um, with Vesla on the 15th in the evening to have a little meet the meet the artists, and then we have in November, I think that will be announced later that there will be a launch, there will be other artists in the series that will have talks and conversations and intersections. <laughs> I'm 
oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we're not going back in time. <laughs> but I, I think, Jennifer, what you should do is get out that red pen and start right. circling these things and then blow them up. Right. That's what we're going to do. It's still one of, my parts for, one of my favorite pieces. It's so funny. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank um, you. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you.